On The Regenerative Journey, our goal is to nurture and facilitate the lives and journeys of all our followers, which is why we've teamed up with resource consulting service, RCS, Australia's leading provider of education and advisory services in regenerative agriculture. RCS trains and consults across the ag sector, from individuals and families, through to corporates and even government, empowering people to grow productive and profitable businesses in diverse and, importantly, healthy landscapes. They understand that the future of healthy families, resilient communities and regenerative farming lies in holistic education. Over the last 15 years, I've played an integral role in my own regenerative journey. And I have a lot to thank RCS for, and I'm one of 7,500 others who have attended their farming and grazing for profit course. I don't know where I'd actually be, uh, and I certainly wouldn't be this far down my own regenerative journey if I hadn't completed a significant amount of training with the RCS team. I can't recommend more highly uh, RCS to anyone looking to start their regenerative journey in a supportive and proven environment. Terry, Makoska and your team, you absolutely rock. And we're also absolutely stoked to be collaborating with them now. For my listeners only, we're offering a 10% discount on all farming and grazing for profit schools and grazing clinics in Australia this year. If you add this to the early bird rate of a seven-day school, you could get a whopping $1,000 off the standard price. Simply add the code CHARLIERCS, that's CHARLIERCS, that's one word, at the checkout to get your concession. How awesome is that? Now head to the show notes to find out more. You know, I want your children, Charlie, my children, to be proud of the way that we've stewarded land, be proud of the fact that we've been able to do it and be profitable, produce great, clean food and fibre, nutrient-dense food, and left our landscapes in a better shape than when we found them. That was Bert Glover, and you're listening to The Regenerative Journey. From wherever we are, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia, recognising their continuing connection to this land, its waterways, the stars in the skies since time immemorial. We pay our respects to the elders, knowledge holders and to all the generations of First Nations peoples who have nurtured their unceded sovereign lands for over 80,000 years and continue to do so today. G'day, I'm your host Charlie Arnott, an 8th generational Australian regenerative farmer and in this podcast series I'll be diving deep and exploring my guests' unique perspectives on the world so you can apply their experience and knowledge to cultivate your own transition to a more regenerative way of life. Welcome to The Regenerative Journey with your host Charlie Arnott. G'day, welcome back to The Regenerative Journey, and this week's episode guest is, as you probably just heard, um, a quote from Bert Glover, before I bang on about Bert, I just remind you that the RCS Convergence Conference is on in the 16th and 17th of July uh, in in Brisbane at the Convention Centre there in the city, uh, and if you want some tickets to, to see and hear and be part of a wonderful convergence of agriculture and human and planetary health, go to the rcsc2022.com.au website, grab some tickets. Uh, I think the early bird might still be on. <clears throat> if not, doesn't matter. They're still very, um, uh, very good value, those tickets. And uh, it's been two years. The guys at RCS have um, uh, had it um, pegged for 2022. No, 2020 it was. And then the COVID just blew that out of the water. So I'm so, um, I'm stoked that those guys have, have put it back on and made the leap of faith to just get on and do it, which I think is what we should all be doing in life. 
at this point in time, given that um, we're just not seeing much of that stuff on the TV anymore, are we? Which is kind of good. I don't know we needed to see much of it in the first place because what we were seeing was, uh, I don't know if it was all that... Um, <coughs> <laughs> I don't know it's actually of much value, to be honest. Uh, anyway, that's another whole other story. I'm sure everyone knows my view on the, on that topic. Nonetheless, let's move on. Uh, one other topic that's come up, and it keeps on coming up, which is interesting, is the whole thing about electric cars. I think I might have banged on a couple of episodes ago about it. And I think what's sort of come to light and really got me thinking more and more about it is, um, you know, is... Is, is the whole, well, I guess renewables, it's, that's certainly part of it, but the, the push for, uh, you know, where are we getting our electricity sources from? Um, we've got solar, got wind, uh, hydro, um, nuclear, I don't know enough about to even comment on, to be honest. Um, and there's coal and there's gas. And I know a bit about coal and gas uh, because um, some years ago I had some uh, property, uh, it's not some property, wind farm developers um, approached us uh, back in the late, 2010s and no, it was before that, 20, 2009 or something, around there saying we can save the planet if you put up some turbines. I don't want to bang on too much about that, but in my um, fight, and it was, a, it was a fight for a number of years to stop that from happening um, around me and, 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 and the community here, um, I learned a lot about renewables. Um, so and a recent message I got, um, which I really appreciate, by the way, you know, when I put posted something recently about you know what are we what are we actually doing here when we're we're running around electric cars that power's got to come from somewhere, at the moment most of it comes from coal and gas. Uh, there's a portion from um, from wind, which again is a whole other bag. Government sponsored fraud, I have to say it out and loud and clear, is wind farms and wind farming. Um, I, I know enough about it to to understand pretty clearly um, that whole that whole kind of thing um, when you consider the. The rare earth metals in those turbines and the, the infrastructure required, the concrete, the steel, the nano tubing, um, basically like a fiberglass for the blades, non, non recyclable, um, diesel burnt to get it all here. You know, most of this, a lot of this stuff's made in, um, uh, overseas. Anyway, I won't bang on enough. <clears throat> I don't think, given the audits we've done and the kind of the research we did that the, that, um, wind farms, um, per turbine actually pay back or, 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 or offset the carbon, um, emitted in their, in their manufacture, in their manufacturing and construction and transport to the point of when they actually start generating power. Cause they do generate power. There's no doubt about that. Um, but is the, is the, is, you know, is the carbon offset at all? Uh, and if it is, is it enough in the lifetime of that turbine to actually offset the, the, the carbon emitted in its in its production. Anyway, a bit of homework there for you. Um, I didn't set out to talk about wind farms too much, but anyway. Nonetheless, so electric cars, and again, look, I think, you know, uh, I'll put wind aside as a as an effective um, renewable energy source. Solar, I'm not, I don't know enough about. As I said, nuclear, you know, is it renewable? Um, in the first place, is it considered there? And hydro is a whole other bag as well. My point being that, and this was a comment that someone made, was, you know, should we be – is it right to be bagging the fact that um, power that's now drawn out of, you know, power points and charging stations to uh, charge up electric cars, most of it, I dare say, actually comes from fossil fuels. So are we actually making a difference in that, you know, maybe we should be just supporting electric cars until such time as renewables can take it over? I mean, I don't know if I want to go there about that. I just don't know that um, – uh, 
I'd like to see more numbers on the on renewables. To be honest, um, in terms of a full audit of of you know um, the environmental, the ecological footprint that they have um, when they're actually operating, but also when they're well, there's three parts to it too, isn't it? There's like when they're being manufactured and the construction and the you know putting all the pieces, whether it's solar or whether it's um, turbines or whatever you know whatever the renewable energy source component for your mechanics is. Um, that's reminded me. I'll just mention something. I'm going to finish waffling on about this. Uh, and so and then, then there's, you know, how much carbon is being offset in its lifetime and then what do you, at the end of its life, you know, what, what, what's, the, what's the impact on the environment? You know, can it be recycled? I know for the turbines, the blades can't be recycled. They have to be uh, maybe overseas, but I don't think we've got any, any, um, uh, any um, processing plants or facilities in Australia to do it and, you know, imp- they do deteriorate over time. Um, they do break down, and you know, encasing them in concrete is one way to, to to stop that. But that's a whole other you know environmental issue in itself. So there's three stages that I you know I don't know. I'm not clear if the numbers are out there. I'd love to love to see them. Uh, I know there's lots of people going out. You know, and that's what I got when I was fighting wind farms. Actually, was well, you must you must love coal if you don't like wind. It's like oh really? And I would just say to them, well look, just because I don't love you know, I don't like I like, don't like forwards. Doesn't mean I love Holden. You know, it's like I have my choices and my reasons for for not not uh, liking. You know, in this, in this instance, um, wind wind power. Um, anyway, that's a whole other thing. So, look, I'm not against renewables. I am just very cautious as to getting on the bandwagon. So they're going to save the planet and we'll be 100 percent renewable in 15 years' time. Because I just I don't I don't know. Not that it's not possible. I mean, I'm sure it's possible, but is that actually solving the problem? Are we actually then reducing less carbon if we look at the whole, if we audit the whole system from go to woe, you know, from manufacturing operation and then and then and then um, end of life kind of stuff? Anyway, nonetheless, um, there was that was my point actually. You know, if, if we all agree or want to kind of sit around the the problem of carbon or we're emitting as a race, you know, on this planet more carbon than is being put sequestered, then. I guess the, the mass of it might suggest that there's more carbon in the atmosphere. Um, but the whole idea of trying to offset that mechanically, I mean, let's say it's, it's a biological, physical kind of a problem, um, if we call it a problem, and it's interesting that um, we've all sort of, you know, in our techno heads and, you know, in commerce and, and, and corporations, we're going, well, how do we fix this with mechanics? Oh, we get the wind or we get the solar and do all these things. I'm not saying it's all bad. I'm just saying, is that really the way forward? I mean, my 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 comment to that would be, you know, I don't believe you can solve a biological problem with mechanics. You know, you 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 might need, and, and I suggest, you know, doing what we're doing, and many other farmers are doing, and and people growing trees, and anyone who's sequestering carbon, that's a real solution. It's a biological solution. You know, so that's where my head is right now. How do we get onto the, all of that? Again, I didn't set out to do to to, to to rant on about that. Nonetheless, it's topical. It's interesting. I think it's worth more consideration. Uh, I'm certainly not just jumping on the bandwagon, going, "Yep, electric cars are all the go." I did mention previously about um, you know the componentry um, sitting in a car with all that rare earth metal, and that's a whole other thing where it's mined and how that impacts the environment. But just the EMFs around in, in, sitting in those cars for hours on end. Well, if they can actually go for yeah, more than a couple of hours without being charged. Um, there was something else in there as well about electricity, and I don't know. I can't remember now. It doesn't matter. I'll, I'm sure it'll come up 
um, another time. Let's bang on about Bert Glover now. Uh, Bert is a wonderful human being. I used to play rugby um, uh, with Bert and against Bert um, down here at Burrawa. He was playing for the Yes Rams. I was playing for the Burrawa Goldies. He played a bit of his own football. And um, since then, he's gone on to wonderful things. And I, I, I'm really fascinated with with with, um, with Bert's Bert's story, uh, farming, um, looking for different answers, looking for a better way to do things, looking at benchmarking on farms, looking to just improve the productivity and the accountability of, of a farm and, and the investments one, one, one has made in that. Um, through a series of um, uh, uh, events and changes in direction, um, he's now uh, heading up a wonderful um, business called Impact um, Ag Partners and it's all about natural capital, it's all about um, realising natural capital and the value in that on farms and, and working them regeneratively um, and running them regeneratively and looking at you know all all the aspects of that all the natural capital kind of um, assets, but in 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 the in the context of a regenerative approach. So we're not just like mining the the the, the farms and just extracting capital value out of it. It's about how do we enhance that and 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 um, and, and and value it, and then farmers can actually be essentially paid and um, for the, the good work they're doing um, in, in a number of ways. You can be the judge of, um, of uh, all that. I reckon it's a wonderful, uh, wonderful business and a wonderful step forward in, in, in the sort of realisation of, of the good work that farmers are doing. Enough of me. More of, um, more of Bert, please. Uh, here he is, Bert Glover, and I uh, trust you enjoy this interview with, uh, with Bert on The Regenerative Journey. Bert Glover, welcome to The Regenerative Journey and welcome to the second interview I've done in Lisa's Cottage here, just over the road from Wilmot. Have you ever been to Lisa's Cottage? Maybe I shouldn't ask. <laughs> Lisa's Cottage. Charlie, no. I haven't been to Lisa's Cottage. I've driven past it many a time. You know, knew where it was. I, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah right. This is Little Falls Creek. It's an amazing creek. We just came over, uh, one of three on Wilmot and... Um, Little yeah. Little Falls. It's called Little Falls, and there is a, actually a little oh. fall downstream, about a k, platyp- platypus fish, like beautiful. It's well, Bart mentioned the, the, the story about um, the trout, and when he was five and everything, which just was like, no, it was like straight up, and it was fascinating because um, there's quite a few waterfalls on Wilmot, isn't there, or a number of them? I don't there's know. three, three. Yeah. One's quite, yeah, amazing, beautiful, yeah, it really is. Is that because it's a waterfall? Strange question, maybe because I mean, and you always think waterfalls are sort of in the national parks and, and and open to the public. That's clearly not. That's a, that's a that's just a beautiful thing to have on a private property. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. I hope they don't get people wandering in there going. Oh, I've heard about these falls. Um, we probably should stop talking. About that. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Oh, did you think I said waterfalls? No, I said. <laughs> Something else. I see. Oh, oh no! I said I meant gravel pit. That's what I meant. No, that's fine. And um, I didn't say thanks for having me, but it's a oh, pleasure, mate. Charlie. And, you just did. That's and, awesome. And well done for this initiative. It's really neat. Someone's sharing all these stories because that's many people learn from other people's stories. Well, I mean, it's it's. Um, I appreciate you saying that. I've been. It's because I think. I was here, you know, last time, not the last time I saw you, but one of the last times I saw you was at, um, in Armidale because I was, I was, you know what it was. It was the day after the, the, the Meyer Grazing workshop, um, field day, which is what is day, day two is today, two years ago. And I just interviewed, um, Sarah Schmuder. Yeah. 
that morning, and we Sorry. met for coffee, I think, down the road That's right. at your office. So that was two years ago. Um, and I said, mate, we're going to hit you up for an interview. So it's taken two, well, at least two years to do that. So here we are. Looking at um, Stan, who is living in the house next door, I'm, I don't think I'm out of line saying that, his horse, I didn't ask him the name of his horse, It's 14 years old, not fine-looking steed. I'm not sure if he wants to be sitting there doing doing what he's doing right now. If I was, I wouldn't be wanting to be standing there tied up to that post. Well, if you think about it, though, where else would you rather grow and live if you're a horse than Ebor? I mean, life doesn't get much better. It's kind of being in – it's like being in the salad bowl, isn't it? It's like you're in a buffet. <laughs> yeah. If you're a horse, mate, this is heaven. This is heaven. If there's a good tree to shelter under and you've got Stan giving you a bucket of chaff twice a day, which I, I saw him do there before, then I think you would be pretty happy. I wish I'd asked him the name of that horse. It's a fine-looking – He's, I don't know if he's got any batteries left in him. Can't quite see that bit, but anyway, we know he's a, we know he's a, we know he's a boy. Batteries Mate. or not, he's in good condition. <laughs> he, he probably doesn't care. He's just having so much fun just being alive here at Ebor. Mate, um, off the horses, on to you. Um, we are at Ebor, and um, we'll get to sort of how you got to be here um, a bit later on, as in this location and so on. Looking out upon, and as I am known to do, Bert, with um, uh, with my guests, is take them to. And this is not where you grew up, and and but yeah, this not ex- this exact view, but certainly this part of the world. It's I dare I say, it's special to you in some some way, shape, or form. But being in nature, looking out at yes, a horse, a beautiful horse, and look like look like it might be an old orchard or something out there, and and green grass of Ebor. What is it sort of? Is that a you know? I mean, you said the horse should be pretty happy. Are you happy to be here? Oh, yeah. I love this place. I love this area. Um, you probably know this, but for those listeners that don't, Ebor is one of the regions on the Great Dividing Range up the east coast of Australia that's actually nearly, you'd have to fact check this, but it's nearly the closest point to the eastern seaboard to the coast. And what that means is that we've got good elevation here at about 1,250 metres and um, we attract really good precipitation. As we have seen in the last (laughs) couple of days, experienced, felt. I nearly got got bogged to coming up the drive. (laughs) But, um, you know, to have that rainfall and then you've got some of the youngest soils in Australia here in Ebor, these red basalts. So you've probably spoke about this with our friend, uh, Davidson, but farms in this part of the world are what we call they're kind of the V8s of farms. This this area, these production systems here from an agricultural point of view, they're the V8s. Hol- highly productive. Oh, man. And when they go, their zero to 100 happens very fast. Well, it's funny you say that because um – uh, we had a dinner here at the uh, uh, night before day one at my grazing, the field day, um, and the I've got to be careful of that bird because it fell off before three times in the in the interview. Um, the how was it? Was it Al or was it Bart? Oh no, Cole. Cole Phelan said, um, oh, one of this one of the guys down there. He said that um, some of the area here. Used to grow a lot of potatoes. As they, I mean, Dora goes famous for potatoes. I didn't know they, they kind of make sense that they grew them here as well. But he also said that, um, might have been Bart, he said, this is where cattle used to come to die. That the, the native, you know, the traditional native pastures and probably con- conventional management at that time 
the winters are so harsh that yep. you know cattle wouldn't do so good up here. You know, they they yep. if they didn't die, they probably did nothing for the whole winter and then try to make up for it in the spring and the summer and autumn. But you're saying that I guess maybe with management and other things that it's it's red hot. Oh, when it, I mean, you're exactly right in relation to winter. I mean, the elevation, you know, it is cold in the winter and in general terms, you know, again, you'd have to fact check this, but it's like a 100-day winter up here, gets very cold, young stock, um, you know, and, and stock that aren't healthy, they can, they can find it challenging. And, you know, we've run a lot of different enterprises at Wilmont over the years um, and we've had to adapt that over time and we learned early on when we bought Wilmot the farm that you know we had to think about our enterprise mix and what was going to work what, how we'd manage the winter and you know we'll probably get onto that later but it's it's changed the whole kind of um, strategic investment approach for the group the management of winter so but when I go back to talking about this being a V8 when the soils start to warm up you know and you you come into spring, October, November, it's game on. Because mm. <laughs> the, the rainfall, whilst, I mean, like a lot of like Burua or, or, or Yass and down our way, uh, your old way, um, is, I mean, they say it's Mediterranean climate, you know, what is that nowadays? But um, not much growth in winter, you know, and, and but is, is, is the rainfall here in winter adequate and then it's, it, it, that's, a, that's an opportunity to fill up the profile and then game on, spring's here. Is that generally what that what happens? Well, this is where it's a little bit different uh, to the region you're referring in the Southern Tablelands. Um, this climate here, it it doesn't, you know, it might only get forty mil, fifty mil through those months of June, July, and and it's cold, not overly. It's temperature that's limiting, mm. and then if you don't get some early. September, October rain as well. You can have a challenging spring here. You know, from a seasonal point of view and a rainfall pattern point of view, you know, February is the wettest month on, on this farm here. Um, but, again, you've got the soils that hopefully, you know, they act like a massive sponge. If you can retain your moisture, you can do some things that are in your control to take out those peaks and troughs. I mean, it does grow here, Charlie, in the middle of winter, but, you know, in right. old old terms it does about nine kilos of dry matter per hectare per day so it there's a small amount there so you know it's not going to set the world on fire it only sort of maintains a minimal minimal stocking rate don't count on it wait let's um we'll get back to wilmot and what's happening here um but give us a bit of a rundown on that this morning tell me but um where did as the name suggests regenerative journeys about my guess journeys and dare i say you know i choose yes that I know somewhat of their, their journey, and it and it doesn't necessarily have to refer to a farming regenerative type of journey. You know, we've interviewed dentists and meditators and all sorts of actresses and things, and there, but there are certainly um, principles and, and kind of um, you know uh, attitudes, dare I say, and perspectives that are certainly common through that. And there are turning points and there are tension events that sort of a catalyst for change. So we'll we'll get to those. But where do you want to start? Your journey, Bert, Bert, do you want to, like, you know, born at um, somewhere um, to uh, this and doing that as a child? I mean, you can start anywhere, mate. Okay, mate. That's probably a good place to start. It is a journey, isn't it? So um, born and raised on a, on a family 
primarily fine wool merino sheep farm in southern New South Wales at Yass. Um, and I, I grew up just following my dad around, wearing his old hat, <laughs> uh, boots that were too big. I was the youngest of four and I was just in his shadow and, you know, he would say that I had sheep shit on the brain from the get-go. <laughs> um, and so I, I was always going to be a farmer, Charlie. Mm. I went away to boarding school. School and I, you know, we, weren't, we didn't get along so good. <laughs> um, and so I spent my early years, and here we are looking at this horse out here, not so happy. I grew up, my dad loved to ride horses. Um, I really got into horses as well. Um, we back in those days, you know, we did all our sheep work on horses. We'd always find a, a great flat paddock to have a race at the end of the day. Um, my two brothers and sister, yeah, they rode a horse because it was a job to be done, but they weren't all that passionate about it. Um, but you know, it was one of my passions, and that probably, you know, I got interested in horses, horse sports, and I kind of made up my mind that when I finished boarding school. I was heading to the Northern Territory and I wanted to ride horses, chase cattle and experience what it's like to, like to be a ringer in, in the top end. So Ringer from the top end. Though. That's it. Where'd you end up up there? What station are you up there? So I, well, shit. I worked for a consolidated pastoral company oh, and okay. at that time they had you know, assets right across Queensland, Northern Territory and, and into WA. They'd just bought Carton Hill oh, near yeah. Kununurra. Did you get up there? Yeah, I was really lucky in terms of an experience. So it started out, the stock camp I was involved in, we were like a, a travelling stock camp. So we would meet in Queensland. We'd have our all our horses would be there, our trucks, the trucks would be there, and we would do, you know, we'd go to a fattening place in Queensland, help with mustering as soon as it was dry enough. We'd then pack everything up, take all our horses, all our gear, head west. We'd do a round at Newcastle Waters on one of those um, areas. I mean, there was a permanent camp there, but they needed help. We'd go there, then we'd do another little place called Dungown in the Tanami. We were responsible for all those cattle, so we'd, we'd do that. Then we'd head to Humbert River, which was kind of our base. We were called the Humbert River Stock Camp. We'd, we'd go there, and um, it's crazy when you look back at it. You know, we we there, my head stockman at the time, he's, he was 21. What were you? What age were you? I had my 18th birthday in the, in the Blue Heeler hotel in Kainuna. So I just turned 18. Have you got a stubby coaster from back then? I haven't, but I've got one from some, I've got, I've got one. I don't know where the hell it is, of course, but they've got one there. Let's just say it's the first and the last time I drank bourbon. Um, (laughs) What happened? What happened in between? (laughs) So what year are we talking? We're talking 1993. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, So we'd go to Humbert River. That was our base. We'd had to spend, you know, couple of months fixing floodgates, we'd do, we'd muster, have to knock the place back into shape. Humbert River's just behind VRDs, bit of a goat track to get there, mm. um, bit of isolation there. And then we'd go across to Carton Hill and help out there and they were opening up as well. So part of Carton Hill's is probably called Ivanhoe. Oh, yeah. Still a lot of sort of um, shorthorn cross cattle. Mm. Um, uh, the... Um it was, was it Bradley, Richard yeah, Bradley correct. at the time? Yeah, that's right. Yep, they, I think they were actually still living in the, in the big house when we took over. Well, I, I know they were there in um, 92, 94, because I was up there. A mate of mine was 
Um, well, I was telling you about that Brokeback Mountain story. Oh, <laughs> you can't put that on a podcast. <laughs> I don't know if I like it. Well, it, 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 the horse and the whole, it got, the guy had to devolve. No, it's not as bad as it sounds. Not that that's bad. It's just, anyway, that's what it was. Um, anyway, that same good, same good mate, he was looking after, um, uh, he was at the Ord River with pack seeds, Pacific seeds up there. And we went up, mate and I went up there to help him, you know, detassel corn and, um, yeah, I do all that stuff as you do and rogue sorghum and all that sort of caper. And so we went to, and his his girlfriend at the time was the was the she was the station cook at Carlton Hill. Oh right. So we went out there and the um uh, they were buddies with the Paspalis and all that sort of stuff. So anyway, it was it was a yeah, so I I guess I'm getting a little time reference for myself there. Um yeah, no, so beautiful part of the world, isn't it? Beautiful part of the world. And it was in the early days, like there was I think it was a hundred Ks from the homestead to the coast and you know there was no cattle yards out there that was, it was early days and this is the 90s and i remember we did this master charlie and we were about oh, 50k's from the lakina and i i remember saying the headstock and what's this master about he said this morning at four three helicopters went to the coast and they're going to be here in a, probably about half an hour they've been flying for three hours and, we, and they're going to have a big mob of short on cattle that haven't sent a a human before, and I went right, and then <laughs> and then he, and then we get there, and we sort of set a strategy on how we're going to try and wrangle these things. And the spear grass, even when you're on your horse, is still six feet high. Mm. So you know, all you see is the spear grass coming to get laid over when the cattle are coming, coming you, towards you, and you can hear the chopper behind them. And ones that break out, you know, in those days with Bruce Lysus, it was just bang, bang, bang. They're just shooting things. At, and anyway. I think they started with something like, I don't know, it was only 400 head. I think we yarded like 100. Yeah, you can. <laughs> yeah. And that took all day, no doubt. Oh, yeah. But it, what a, it's a great education and, you know, makes you think a bit of life preservation comes in every now and then. And well, I guess, I, I mean, I'm, I kind of appreciate WHS and safety and all that sort of mm. kind of staff that that's kind of, you know, in some ways sensible. But at the same time, I don't know, the, the, the more we have, Decisions made for us and kind of, you know, that, I mean, the less we get to experience and actually, oh, I might get out of the way of that thing, you know. I haven't got yep. a helmet on and I'm not necessarily equipped with a two-way radio, but I'm, you know, your own personal safety and responsibility, I think, is not necessarily as important as it used to, as it is now, you know what I mean? Well, well a little you know, bit. Did you yeah. have two ways on you or? No, we, no. no, we had nothing like that. And no. But the thing is, you know, the way risk back then was managed, Charlie, was real about recruitment. So it was like, what's your background? What's your experience? What's your attitude? Like, you know, those companies, they wouldn't hire someone that was going to be a liability or make irrational decisions. They weren't going to hire someone that couldn't, you know, spend good hours on a horse and and understand how livestock work, you know. So that's – and you know what? With all the training and everything that we've got in place today, I mean, you know, we've got – Assets all across Australia and assets in the US. You still got experience, common sense, um, intuition, and yeah, and just um, I always forget the bloody word. Not intuition, initiative, initiative. Yeah, initiative. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, we better get back on track here. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I and then we turn around from Carton Hill and we do all those rounds all the way back the Newcastle waters. Well, then we do that. It's October, November time to go home for the wet season. So. I did that for two years, um, working up there, and it was, you know, 
if nothing else, I learned to work. Big days, not a lot of time off. If you did have time off, it was at a rodeo. So you were riding in the rodeo and then load the truck, back out. You mightn't see, you know, you mightn't go back to town for eight weeks, six weeks to the next camp draft and rodeo. Mm. But you learn to work and you learn to get along with people. Um, you know, you're in with eight or ten people and you got to get along. You know, no doubt know Stu's story, well, some of it I, I, I imagine of his time up there and his kind of epiphanies he had and mm. things that, you know, stood out to him. What did you, so two years, mm-hmm. and what sort of got you out of there end of year two? Um, I couldn't really see a career that was going to satisfy my ambitions. Um, it was great. I learned to work. I learned a lot. I made some good connections, some good friends. Uh, learned a lot about myself. But for me, it, I didn't think it was going to really advance a career that I'd be, I'd be proud of. What did, what did you learn about yourself? I mean, uh, you know, I learned pretty early on that you know, <laughs> put in some situations, I can you know like. Any young guy, I can be a smart ass and get a bit full of myself, like all of us. And and that's one of the reasons why you go there, you know. Like, doesn't hurt you to you know get a clip under the ear every now and then and put you back in the line and to get along with other people and how to behave and you know, it was a part of a growing up experience. I guess I'm not saying I I walked away and I was a new human. I mean, I didn't really know what I wanted to do in my life till I was thirty, but. That was that played a big part in it, and I I needed to get away from you know school. I needed to get away from my comfort zone. I needed to be put out of my comfort zone to kind of get to that, to get some rounding, I think, and become a better human, some more humility. Did you um, did you have these thoughts at the time? Like were nah. you like, like you know oh, I I'm not being taken the piss or anything, but like yeah. you know was there like reflection going? Oh, I need to be you know. More humble, or need to develop more, or is it kind of a just you sort of on reflection? It was a, just a, a subconscious kind of a urge. It, it's were, on, were it's, you reading books? Like I know that's no, stupid, you know, no, I, I wasn't. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't get passionate really about reading till I really started thinking about mentors and and business people that I that I really idolised. I'm not really into fiction. I'm into fact based information and biographies and people's stories. That's what really ticks me. Um, and so I, I came to these realisations later on on reflection, Charlie, and, and try, you try and think about what's contributed to the person you are, I think, today. It's nothing like a podcast like this when someone says, I want you to talk about your journey and you reflect on it. And I've had a couple of days to reflect on it. And it's like, it's actually really good for the soul to reflect on who you are, how you got here, you know, what you believe, what your purpose is. So if nothing else, you know, thanks for making me reflect for a couple of days. I should have just told you this, asked you this morning, hey, Bert, just pop down. Yeah, <laughs> sure. You'd have put me in a spin then, I tell you. Well, Bart had some similar um, – uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> but he, as he's then prone to do, overthink things, and that, that's his words as well. But I, that's that's really nice to hear. I, I haven't sort of kind of thought of it that way. That that that, that uh, this process is a prompting kind of a um, situation for my guests. So that's kind of, at least that's a, that that must be a good thing then. Yeah, it is. It is. It's really good. Um, <clears throat> and so to sort of build on, I guess, on that journey, um, came home from two years working in the Northern Territory and, you know, I didn't really grow physically as a human until I got home. I mean, you work so hard, you are going 100%. You know, it wasn't till 12 months later I realised, you know, I've actually put on six kilos now and I haven't got an ounce of fat on me but I've been able to actually grow. I've got probably a bit better nutrition, more bit more fresh food. When you went home? When I finally got, yeah, you know, looking yeah. back. Um, so got home and then I thought, righto, I've probably got, I've got some more exploring to do here. And part of that exploring was I thought, you know, my roots historically were in the sheep business. So I went and worked at a couple of larger sheep studs in New South Wales just to try something different. From any, any that you care to name? Uh, so one was at a place called Woolura next door to Bunnock at, um, down at Canago. Okay, yep. It's about 110,000 acres. Well, it was then. This is in 95. So we're talking Riverina. Can talking I, Riverina, yeah. yeah. Yep. And it was a great place to work. Um, great old guy that owned it, a uh, guy called Bill Lamb. And, you know, those are the days, Charlie, where, you know, he'd go to town and he had his black top hat and his waistcoat and, his, and he'd go once a week to town. And, oh, shit. And it was just for us young guys to see him mm-hmm. do that. It was kind of like. What was the name of that place again? Woolura. Uh, don't know. Uh, W-I-L-L-U-R-A. That's cool. Yep. And they just grew big riverina, heavy cutting, mm. medium strong merino shit. And it was great. It was very much a commercial operation, but it had a stud as well. And um, Anyway, <clears throat> part of my learning journey. And then I spent another six months at a stud at Warren called Ejilabra. Oh, yeah. Um, owned by the Catter family, and um, so it was um, that was in ninety. That was early ninety six. So it was um, Hugh, Hugh, Hugh Lydia. Yep, yeah, he was the manager. Yeah, yeah. Yep, and uh, and another neat guy was the overseer, a, a guy called Paul Kelly, who's such a character. But you know, we all played footy together in Warren, and uh, used to play against Burke and Cobar and all those places and bus trips, and that was fun. So <laughs> we. Um, so, so what is it? The um, Warren, what are the Warren Watts Rams? Pumas, Pumas, black and white, just I, like the Ash Man. <laughs> that's right. He couldn't, he couldn't get away from it because yeah. the um, oh, they are the, the other Rams. I haven't even thought of that because I was talking to a fellow up at Walgut the other day, um, Nick Mace, and he he, t- he says there's there's other Rams up there. There's like the is oh, it the Walgut Rams and there's the no not the Walgut um, yeah Walgut and there's like there's three Rams up there. Oh, wow. Rams teams. No, well, we were the Pumas. Because that was the sheep Warren. thing, you know. Pumas. It was, yeah. We were great. And this overseer, a guy called Paul Kelly, like played hooker and he wasn't happy unless he got stitches after every game. It was funny. <laughs> if things were going not good for us, Paul would just start swinging at someone. Like, <laughs> just to turn it up. What a, but a great guy. I learned, I learned quite a bit from Paul. He's a neat guy. Um, so what, we're at 1996, then it was kind of, I finally got the call from the folks, you know, I think it's mm. time to think about coming home and helping out a bit and, you know, which was really great because, um, I kind of, I think got that on my system at that time, point in time. Um, 
and came home and, and I think, you know, as part of this journey, it's always interesting when you go home and your parents are still there and they're in charge of the farm and you've been out and you've got some confidence and, and it's really interesting to start thinking about the management of a farm, business management, succession, finance, performance. Um, so, you know, it's probably the first time, and you've got to remember too, I guess, my parents, so this is in the mid-90s, agriculture for, for them growing up, it was, it was a business, but it was also a bit of a, bit of a lifestyle. Mm. And, and, you know, they, their, their formative years, if you go back for them, their formative years is the 50s and 60s. Well, if you're in the wool industry in the 1950s and you're getting a pound a pound, life's pretty good. Mm. And so when the economics and then you change and in the wool industry you get um, – there was the, um, the price – the wool price – what was that? Um, oh, the, um, the floor price. The, yeah, the, the floor, floor price. Floor, floor price, yeah. Put together by a WB or whatever it was. Yeah. <clears throat> and so anyway – Economics change, things change. Our family farm, we were looking at expanding and, and my folks bought some more dirt and we were leasing and, you know, we were going quite well. And one thing that, you know, I was really proud of my folks is because, you know, they didn't ever really have a leader or a business coach or anyone. And they sort of went out and decided to participate in a farm benchmarking group. And, a, and this farm benchmarking group was made up of about 20 family farmers primarily within a 200k radius from where we were, so from kind of Goulburn to, let's say, Jugiong or whatever. Mm. And I think that group, the group was facilitated by an accountancy firm and um, a um, cons- ag consultancy firm, put these people together and you would submit all of your financial data, production data. And for a young guy like me, it really had quite an impact on me in terms of looking at numbers different, looking at what drives production and then the relationship between production and financial performance. And it was something that probably had quite an influence on me in understanding the value of data, number one, Number two, the business side of agriculture. So it was probably the first time for me that when I started looking at, you know, our performance, our profitability, how productive we were, return on equity, um, you know, our gearing levels, how we manage debt. Um, Because, you know, we were kind of, we're trying to grow. We're trying to expand. We're going to take on, you know, where can we get cheap capital? So had a real influence on me and, and, and I really I used to just look at this data and, and what was really cool about the process that these guys have put together, Charlie, was <clears throat> every quarter you'd go to someone's farm and everyone got really comfortable with each other knowing their information and data. And it, got, yep, mm. it got to a point where I knew how much debt you had, mm. you knew how much debt I had. You knew if I was going through succession challenges, you knew who was having a divorce. We became quite a <clears throat> well-connected group, but every quarter we'd go to each other's farm and we'd, they'd do a presentation on their numbers and we'd have a little farm tour and you could ask open as many questions as you like. And then the real kicker for me was when once a year we'd get together, 
all of us. And we would, it was facilitated, and they would talk about the year in review and who put, who were in the top 20% for any given kind of metric. And it might be um, beef produced, you know, cost of production of beef, might be cost of production of clean wool, might be return on equity, might be just on... Kilos of beef per hectare. You got it. Yeah. Um, so it was, a, it, was a, it was, a, I guess, essentially a benchmarking group program yeah. set up. Who, who was running that? So it was Holmes and Sackett. Sackett. It was yeah, Holmes right. and Sackett together with Boyce and Co. <clears throat> yeah, right. And was that their first Was that their first pilot of that or they'd been doing it elsewhere? I think they'd done – I think that they had other groups. So there was one mm. going down the Monero at the time and there was a couple other groups around and we would actually – I think they'd used to put everyone's data from all around New South Wales that were in these things yeah. every now and then. Yep. But for me, the reason why those annual events were great is that they would say, okay, the, f- the five businesses that were in the top 20% for return on assets or the top five businesses for cost of production per kilo of beef, please come up the front. And those five would go up the front. And you could ask any question you wanted. They would share how they got their cost of production so high. Yep. And just simple things like, were you, cost- were you focusing more on cost or were you focusing more on production mm. to get a good outcome of cost of production or your return on asset you know how are you driving your system with the balance sheet and the assets you had at your disposal mm. so for me you know by this time I'm I don't know 25 26 it was an eye-opener for me but I used to get that data and I used to look at it and stew on it on the weeks before it and <laughs> analyse it and think about it it had you been a data numbers person before that? Like, was that something yeah. at school you like, you're a mass nerd or anything? No, mm. no. At, at school, no. And it was only because it was related to agriculture. Yeah. It's the only reason why. It was why. relevant. It was relevant to mm. me and it was relevant because, you know, how could my family and I, how could we make, how could, because it was quite interesting for us as a business, depending on what was going on, we were in and out of the top 5% quite a bit and mm. it's like, how are we going to get this business so that we're up there and stay there? So anyway, that was that. And the reason I bring that up is that it kind of, it was all about economic performance and production performance. And it helped me realise the importance of data. And when we're talking about a regenerative journey, not once were we talking about back then in the 90s on Soil organic carbon, biodiversity metrics, uh, team engagement, social engagement. No. We didn't have those. But I think for me, I got to understand what drove really good financial performance. And I think as my career progressed from that point in time, I would question some of the performance that we were all experiencing in years of drought. So how were our assets faring in the challenging times in relation to our financial performance? There was no environmental metrics, which, you know, you know, this is the 90s. That was not going to happen. Different point in time. That's fine. But for me, it was... It was a way that I felt when Impact Ag started to 
really get tracking, we were going to be dogged about metrics relating to the environment and social impact. And mm-hmm. so one of the first things when we started really reporting to our investors, it was going to be impact reporting and we were going to hoover whatever information and data we felt was going to be relevant to demonstrate what we were doing in additional in addition to financial performance. What's and it's, I mean clearly and that's what a lot of yesterday's talks at day one here was was about. I mean not specifically um well, I mean, it was it was it was it was the ecology, the importance of ecology as a driving force for economics. You know, we didn't mm. to drill down all the numbers, and if you do this, you're going to get X dollars per hectare or whatever. But it was more the importance of this, the asset or the value of the asset, and the 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 performance of the asset, and and I guess the you know which in any at any one point in time you can measure, and there's you know lots of variables, of course, but it was about well, how can we actually improve that? You know, yeah. to be the driving force, the you know the the goose that's laying the golden eggs. How can we fatten it up? How can we you know give it some buddies? How can we you know what sort of feed do we need to give it to keep it you know ever well, regenerating and which is I guess a um, you know addressing degradation in some ways, but just a general um, generation of biology, soil health, all those all those wonderful things. So, um, and again, I guess back then. You, the numbers you're looking at were financial, which was pretty important. You know, did you ever, ever, did you ever at any point then go, oh, I wonder what our soil's doing? Or no, but no, no, not in the sort of context that you and I think about it today. But I think, like you and your family farm, soil, soil test and soil health was all about the impact it had on plant production and then the financial outcomes of of that plant production. So it was in the context of production. So you were, we were testing soil and doing all these other things, but it was like more about what's the problem we were trying to fix so we could grow X or perform better with Y as opposed to how are my soils, how can I improve the overall health of my soil? There was none of that thinking back then. Looking for more information to assist your regenerative journey? Come join Charlie and his guests around The Kitchen Table, an online community of supporters with exclusive access to the Regenerative Journey interview transcripts, live online Q&A sessions, a chance to engage with other like-minded people and more. Go to www.charliearnett.com.au forward slash The Kitchen Table and we look forward to sharing a yarn with you. Now let's get back to this week's episode. Um, so benchmarking, family farm, um, you know, I guess happy? Happy. Uh, yep, thinking about the next challenge. Um, actually, in so at home and looking at that horse reminds me, 1999, was really lucky, went to the US for three months and worked with a guy. You know, I know you like to talk about mentors sometime, a, a guy who was kind of unofficial, the kind of first horse whisperer, a guy called Ray Hunt, who was amazing with horses. And 
a friend of mine and I, we flew to Colorado Springs. We did a horse clinic, so starting young horses. He'd been to Australia. We'd kind of known him. We went over there to do some intense horse clinics. We went to Colorado Springs, did a clinic, and at the end of the clinic he came up and goes, you two Aussies want to come work with me for a while? And we just went, hell yeah. Did you, did you know the other Aussie? Or did you just turn yeah, yeah. No, yeah. mate of mine, I worked in the Territory. Okay. Um, so, so that was just amazing, you know, this guy that we'd idolised and, and it was all about natural horsemanship and, and, and Ray Hunt is a guy who doesn't care too much for humans, but he cares a lot <laughs> about horses. So there could be some, for some participants in those clinics, there was a baptism of fire mm. because, you know, if you were doing the wrong thing by the horse or weren't giving the horse the opportunities he felt that the horse could have, well, you'd get the wrath of Ray Hunt. Yeah. And there was plenty of people that went out with their jaw on the ground and, mm. you know, that wasn't for them. But he was all about the horse and he was great for us. And he um, he was he was amazing. We had a lot of fun with him. We travelled and stayed with him a lot, did all these clinics. And he used, because he, was, he had one lung at that time, he's 70. You know, we were on all these young horses for him. We learned so much and he was very, he was a good human about being humble. I don't know if you've ever heard the poem, The Man in the Glass. No. It's a cracking poem. If you ever get to read it, it's a, it's a, goes, I'll forget it, but it goes something like, when you get, oh, I can't remember it now. It's like, um, and the world makes a king for a day. Go to the mirror and look at yourself and see what the man has to say. It isn't your mother or father or wife whose judgment upon you must pass, whose verdict will count most in your life is the one staring back in the glass. So, wow. But it goes on for, I can't quote Did he write that? No. Well, no, he didn't. That, that he didn't, but he used to sit there on his horse quote it. at these horse clinics and quote it, and it's, yeah, and it's cool. all about you. Don't, don't bring your baggage. Don't try and blame anyone else. Go and have a look in the mirror. Mm. Sort your life out. <laughs> so great. Great for me to, again, humbling experience, really kind of um, good timing for me and I really enjoyed it, learned a lot, had, had some fun, um, fell in love with North America. Um, yeah, and then so that's, so in terms of journey, that's 1999. Then, you know, started thinking about the next challenge, um, started to get involved with um, – big farm down at Cavan, a farm called Cavan Station at Yass. Started to do some work there. Had um, a small contracting business to make a bit extra cash. Um, mustering and so. Mustering and, you know, back then, landmarking and weaning and calf marking and yeah. had a little team of little posse of guys who used to work for me and doing a few different things. Um, when you just back step, you said looking for the next challenge, did you, was that actually how you looked at it? Well, you're reflecting on saying they are challenges as you sort of, you know, change your life and things come up. Or were you actually searching for, I need to kind of push my boundaries a bit? Yeah. I had some inner ambition that I wanted to, you know, expectations on myself, I guess. So, and I kind of was looking for the next real next thing to get my teeth into, I guess. So started working more and more at Cavan Station. It grew a lot in 2000. It doubled in size. Um, and, yeah, that's that's kind of when I got into some senior management positions in managing 
a bunch of people. We had a we had a sheep stud there that we developed in a lot of AI, um, and it was a big commercial beast and challenging geography to manage. Um, so yeah, I was there for quite a bit, and then in terms of the journey, I think, and this is kind of you know you will probably say in some of your podcasts was there a point in time that really turned things around in your journey so in i think in 2005 2006 um in that part of the world there was a major drought and it was a shocker we lost those production systems as you know really rely on that spring growth um from a pasture point of view anyway we missed the spring 2005 um Mm. and it was a 2005, 2006 were really influential years in my life because um, 2005, I got married. My wife, you know, from Vancouver, Canada, she came over. We'd met. We got married in 2005. Um, we had our first son. No, go back a bit. My dad died of cancer in December 2005. Then my grandmother died six weeks later. And then my son was born four weeks later. So this is early 2006. And when you get slapped in the face with with death and seeing loved ones die, I think, again, that was a, a turning point for me to say, I think the question I ask myself is, what would I be proud of when I get put in a pine box? What would and then you start thinking about what would my children be proud of and and what legacy will I leave my children? So that all happened around that time. Um, and so I had so we still had my mother on our family farm. I was working at Cavan. Um, so kind of juggling what are we gonna do with these assets? Um, you know, we had we had some plans around what we're gonna do with the assets, but it, needed execution um, and at the same time we're in the middle of this bad drought I'm working at Cavan um, we go into early 2006 and the manager at the time you know the drought wasn't being managed very well and the manager gets fired because and, of the condition of the farm and just just not 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 managed well yeah, I, I think it was probably more that there wasn't even a pl- that there wasn't a plan for the future. Yeah. So not only the externalities were were there for everyone, how had it been? It had been managed to that point in time. I think that was the family down there weren't comfortable with, you know, owned by a family that a kind of investor that looking in saying, "I'm not sure this is quite right." Mm-hmm. and wasn't a real plan for the future. So it was kind of like something's got to change. And that's when, you know, my relationship with Alistair McLeod starts. He's part of the family, based in Australia. His job to fix it. He rings. I, I was at a point in time in my life where I was like, I'm not sure this environment's quite for me. Mm. I was quite comfortable to look at, for the next challenge. I was actually on holidays in Coffs Harbour and Alistair rang me and said, I've just fired the manager. Can you fly home tonight? And I need you to settle the ship. And 
You see, you were working full time there at that point. You were like overseer or. Yeah. yeah. I was like two IC in a challenging environment. And, you know, just it was a good example of probably at the time the in Farmgate community. We were, you can imagine the stress associated with drought. And then there was, you know, the team wasn't as cohesive as they are today. And, um, lots had to change. And I'd kind of decided and I'd had a couple of opportunities brought to me to move on. And so I'd kind of made the call to move on. And then Alistair Rang said, you better come back. Was that call to get – you're on holiday. He knew you were on holiday. Yeah. And to, to get you to uh, essentially get home that day, was that, was that a test, do you think? Because, I mean, he could have said, oh, I'll give me two more days. Like, you know, the world's not going to go to the shoot in two days. But I don't think it was a test. It was – He needed to sort it out. He needed to sort it out. And he knew he knew my style. I'd, you know, I'd known Alan and known his wife, like, for quite a while. So he knew that I'd do the right thing. He knew I'd come back and help. He knew that I knew. Could depend on you. He knew that I knew the situation really well and that something had to change as well. He was opening a door for you. I mean, which he probably sensed, knowing now, he probably sensed that that was, well, certainly an opportunity that you may have thought of, but, you know, when, when situations are what they are, I mean, to have that door open for you, that's, that was a good thing. Oh, yeah, so I'm, just turned, I just turned 30 and I was the second youngest on the staff and it was like, Alistair's like, right, you and I together, we're going to turn this business around. And we both learn a lot from each other in those, those early years. It was like, what do we want to do and what do we not want to do? Well, we knew we didn't want to be where we'd been. We weren't going to manage drought like that again. We weren't going to see a landscape like that again. We were, our assets could not be like that again. The balance sheet couldn't handle this anymore. And our people, we really needed to start thinking about how we're going to take people on a different journey. We didn't know what the journey was going to be, by the way. We had to, we had to do a lot of exploring. And that meant, you know, he and I spending a week with up at, um, we did that sustainable agriculture course, um, Graham State. Graham State up at we did uh, that. Yeah. or something. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yep. Nambour. Kevin Rudd. Kevin Rudd's electorate. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, Why was that significant? That was like Kevin O's. I just, I just remember every morning going to this course talking about cancelling. <laughs> so, you know, Alistair came from a, a business background, a media background. I came from an agricultural background. It was kind of a neat mix in that I had the execution skills, he had the business skills between us. If we could work out what the right principles and practice were going to be, we could do something really cool. So we went, you know, we involved, we had Graham Ward come and talk to us. We went, you know, down to the Coglands and Aubrey. You know, um, we had David Marsh come over. Uh, we were just exploring what other, what are other people doing went to the Maloon Institute. Mm. What's some other ways of going about this? Um, and, you know, that was really interesting. And then whilst we're trying to f- fix that farm up, we were, you know, we were in this position and 
and we had some pretty substantial feed bills for livestock. And I was there one day and I'd done this feed budget and I said, the amount of money I'm going to ask the family here to put in, I could buy another farm. And this is like 2007. Or, yeah, 2007. And it was like, well, if you're going to buy another farm, where would you buy it? And so if you open a clean slate and a map, I ended up with a map with three circles. One was had a circle around Walker, one had a circle around Ben Lomond, and one had a circle around Ebor. And come, I think, November 2007, we ended up in Ebor. <laughs> now, why, why Ben Lomond, Walker and Ebor? Soil and rainfall. And is that, was that a calculation you kind of... It was, to, it was a counter-cyclical rainfall pattern to what we had in southern New South Wales, so okay. it was strategic. And back then I was thinking that those two farms were going to interact with mm. livestock production and maybe even labour and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, in all realities, they're too far apart. That was never really going to work in hindsight. I mean, mm. I think we did a couple of cattle... We've done some cattle trades between the two, but it was about... But when you think about it as a group, and financial performance and whatnot, even having counter-cyclical climatic and, and, and different growing conditions and seasons, it still made some really good sense. Mm. So I think by April 2008, this place wasn't, you know, Wilmot wasn't even on the market um, officially. Um, I remember Alistair was getting on a plane to go to New Zealand and We'd done the deal one Friday afternoon with the owner. Did you tap someone on the shoulder? If it wasn't on the market, did you say this is a good spot? No, we, we found this um, real estate agent and he said, I do know of this place that sounds like what you want. Mm. He said, it's not officially on the market, but I think if the right people came along, he'd consider it. So this guy, this real estate agent, made the call to the owner and um, he had some pretty lofty expectations and I got a independent vowel done on it. And I said, "Look, we'll pay, we'll pay the val, mm. and we got a deal done." Yeah, nice. Um, did you did you move up here? No, you stayed no. down there. No, I used to come here once a month for. And Alistair was still working full time in Sydney by that time, so Alistair would fly up on the weekends. Um, we'd come up once a month. So you were kind of um, over, not overseeing, but you were. Managing from afar, you were... Yeah, I was the general manager. General we had manager, a manager yeah. on the farm and we had teams here. Mm. Um, back then it was uh, it was a bullock trading business mm. back then. Um, so, yeah, and, it, and I guess in terms of my journey, I mean, a great learning experience here with this farm, a great lab to try things. Um, and in terms of the journey that we were on around how we're going to do things different... It took us, a, you know, it took us two or three years to realise what we did and didn't want to do here, and what we wanted to achieve. So, in terms of getting into more regenerative types of practices, you know, we had to change some key staff just to get the right team on board, you know, um, to come on the journey with us. So we had to do that after a few years. Um, but in, you know, in terms of my journey, this was definitely a part of it, and this farm, Wilmont, and you know. The whole Wilmot story is probably a story best left for someone like Stu or whatnot, where we've we've made more acquisitions to fit strategically into the long term investment strategy. So, Impact Ag Partners has been very much involved in that, but Stu's probably 
a better one to elaborate more on that. Um, I think for me, though, in my journey, um, it just really made me realise that investors need trusted professional business partners for investments in real assets in agriculture. And if the future um, in, in playing a role, when I look now, we believe the role that agriculture can play in decarbonising the atmosphere, producing clean food and fibre, all the things that you and I are passionate about. People that can come and manage capital, managing investments is going to be in high demand. And so for us, that was the catalyst to really put some capital and some investment into Impact Ag and really try and catalyse that. And, you know, first couple of years, yeah, we had a lot of red ink on our P&L because we hired a lot of people and, you know, like any starting business, but it wasn't long, 18 months, two years. We're profitable and we're out running around the world trying to, Raise, raise capital. So that, that, that sort of journey from overseeing at Cavan, there have been some challenges, you meeting those challenges with Al, and then there's kind of some extra more thinking and, and the acquisition of, of Wilmot. I mean, that was good, a good grounding, like a test program for, for Impact Ag, I guess. It was like, well, let's analyse the situation, let's pinpoint a spot and think about why and how and where. Dollars involved. Um, when did Impact Ag start officially and when did you would, did you come up here when it did is that because that the sort of well we, we our first cut of impact ag was the first business was ag investments management and we that was still whilst we were down in yes in southern new south wales and we had i think probably five clients five investors that we were managing assets for and then we, when we moved up here in uh 2013 to armada we rebranded, um, really hunkered down on this. And we'd kind of been involved with some investors in fixing up other investors' problems and starting to raise some external money when Impact Ag really got going in Armadale and we put the right people in the right seats in the business. We could then, and it just then enabled us to really go out and market ourselves and that's when we started going to you know Europe and the US and demonstrating that we had a, an offering for investors through separate managed accounts, direct investments into real assets in Australia that were you know managed in a way that under a regenerative principles and we were really focused on those impact investors that that um, were really keen to see change and that's kind of when we really started to get traction. Yeah. And were you were you going out and, you know, did you have to you had to hunt for that? Or were there was there kind of a nice sort of a, you were looking for it, other people were looking for it too, and then you sort of you know, or was it was it a real slog to sort of unearth, dig up those people looking to invest in ag, whether that be overseas or Australian investors? Raising capital as you know, it's never easy. Um we had some some people have come to us. It's amazing. Some people watch what you do. You know, we've we uh, invested in some assets last year and that discussion went for 24 months. Someone saw me talk in New York. We met again in San Francisco six months later, a few more Zoom calls, and then, you know, we deployed 
some capital for them in Australia last year. So it's never easy. A lot of it is referral and word of mouth. Um, and then the other is, you know, when we go to conferences around the world, talk about agriculture as an impact investment. We talk about agriculture as a solution to climate change. We talk about um, why we believe that investing in ag can be a solution to not only the impacts of climate change, but also something we can do, a solution for future generations, a solution for our children and our grandchildren so that they can see that we are producing clean food and fibre for them and they can see a pathway of, you know, I want your children, Charlie, my children, to be proud of the way that we've stewarded land, be proud of the fact that we've been able to do it and be profitable, produce great clean food and fibre, nutrient-dense food, and left our landscapes in a better shape than when we found them. And I'm hoping, you know, part of our strategy at Impact Ag is around what we call creating a ripple effect to catalyse change. So whether we're in the wheat belt of Western Australia or if we're in Montana, USA, I like to think that we can do some things on farms there that engage the local community we can advocate for what we're doing, demonstrate change and performance and demonstrate profitable ways of producing clean, nutrient-dense food and building a rich environment that we create a ripple effect in those communities that drive a level of change. So Impact Ag Partners, we could go and buy 200 acres somewhere and have intense impact layering enterprise stacking. We could go to the northern part of Australia and buy a million acres and have some impact up there. Um, But for us, we want to be able to influence land managers and land stewards um, globally. And I think to do that, we need to be pioneers in demonstrating change and regeneration and how to do it profitably, how to do it um, you know, by generating natural capital, building landscapes, producing you know, nutrient-dense food. And if you do those things, what we're really, you know, in the short term, what we're really focused on is premiumising um, these things, that, these, these co-benefits. So can you premiumise biodiversity? In addition to carbon credits, what else can go with that? Well, a carbon credit can come with, um, you know, some animal welfare pieces, some biodiversity improvements. You know, what's going to make our carbon credit better than the next one? So for us, um, we want to be demonstrators. We want to, we want to be able to show um, other producers, other ranchers, some different ways of doing things and and hopefully that has a positive impact. And if those all things come to fruition, Charlie, then when they put me in the pine box, I'll be happy. And so will everyone, I think, um, Bert, um, because the the model of outside investment into agriculture to have a positive outcome generally revolves around and traditionally 
is around profit, isn't it? It's like mm. I want to invest. You know, I've mm. got the capital gain and the, of the of the of the farm of the property, and then there's obviously the, you know, what am I getting out of it every year? Um, and that's that's a you know, there's plenty of people still doing that, and that's not good or bad. I'm just saying that's it. But the model you you guys have created has got much more depth to it, hasn't it? I mean, it's 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 okay. There's the bottom line. I mean, your balance sheet now has much more on it in theoretical terms, I guess, in, in, in than, than just what's in the bank and what's in the paddock and, you know, that sort of thing. So let, let's jump into, you mentioned it a couple of times there, natural capital. Just for the, for everyone's benefit, what, what how do you define it? What is it? Well, for us, you know, natural capital is all the things we can identify in nature. So to break it down, we think about water, we think about air, we think about soil, we think about plants. Um, that's kind of natural capital for us. That's how we think about it. Um, so it's it's a broad term, natural capital, isn't it? Mm. So, mm. but but for us, it's all the fantastic things that nature creates, and and um, you know we've got to do our best here to to enhance it, improve it. Um, nurture it and it forms a big part of how you know you you just you know framing up that piece about investment it's a big part of our what we call our impact reporting now there can there can be externalities that impact elements of your performance on a farm you know financial performance but if you can demonstrate and now that you know one of our key metrics you know soil carbon if you can demonstrate that you may have had a big drought, but guess what? Your soil health, your carbon bank in your soils, we haven't lost any of that or we haven't depleted any of that. We haven't drawn on any of that capital in our soil. It's there and in some cases we've enhanced it. So there could be externalities that impact our profitability, but um, a key indicator of our soil health, our proxy for soil health, this thing called soil carbon, it's maintaining or improving. So they're the sorts of things we're proud of. We're proud of our biodiversity numbers, how we're leaving our landscape. So, and then, you know, there is plenty of other years that we have good profitability and you still want to make sure that you're not, in those good profitable years, you're not drawing down on your natural capital either. It's about, we call it a balanced scorecard. You've got to have a balanced scorecard. So what's our um, social metrics for the year? What's our environmental, environmental metrics for the year? And what's our financial metrics for the year? So, that scorecard has got to be balanced. And for us, um, yeah, that's that's kind of, I guess, one of our points of difference. And that that re- resonates back to your point, Charlie, probably closer to private capital as opposed to institutional capital that probably, you know, Regenerative Bank hasn't quite got enough runs on the board yet for large amounts of institutional capital yet. There is indicators and there is people that have raised small amounts, not small, but reasonable amounts of money from institutions and and I kind of feel like they're bits of pilot capital just to see where this organic regenerative thing goes and if if that capital is at risk or not. And I think more and more of those demonstrators... um, What happened then? Stop, hang on. Went black and then... Maybe it's running out of herbs. 
Yeah, keep going, sorry, mate. No, you're right. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, we're, we're all going to, you know, it's going to take time. Um, we've got to we've got to measure stuff. We've got to demonstrate performance, and um, you need you need information and data to do that. So you know, going back to early on, why those benchmarking groups are important. It's really hard to make decisions, big decisions, life changing decisions, investment decisions, if you haven't got a track record of data, and you can't back that up. So yeah, environment or oh, social metrics. Talk to mm. me about that. How do you measure? What, what does that mean exactly? And what are we what are we trying to, to track? And, and and how? How do you do that? Yeah. So we view it in in two areas. So social metrics within the farm gate, how the people inside this business, and we do that through survey. Mm-hmm. Might be annually, might be quarterly. On we survey the team inside. Is the it like a ticker box? Is it like you know? No, well, it, you know, like no, there's questions, and and there's questions that we ask all the team to to participate in, mm-hmm. and they it's anonymous. Yeah, cool. So no one knows who's sending him what, and you come up with what we call a internal engagement score, and then we we measure other things and how we how we and and you know there's no rule um, there's no playbook for this. We've had to make this up mm-hmm. on the run. So outside the farm gate, we look at things like hours. Donated, so time donated in the community might be capital in um, donated into the community and through donations. It could be time spent, um, you know, talking and sharing our story or or volunteering, um, all those sorts of things. You know, Um, because it's not it's not all about just going making donations of of cash for a local thing. You know, you've got to in my mind, you know, time is the real metric of life, time. How you invest that time. Yeah. Some people may think that money is the, you know, the currency of life. For me, time is the currency of life. And so I think spending time in communities, contributing to communities, um, trying to understand the communities you work in. I mean, that's really interesting. I, I learn so much all the time about people. It's fascinating. <laughs> it's fascinating going into new communities when you've just purchased an asset and you're, you're the new firm that's come into a community. It's, yeah, it's very interesting. Do you get, um, and in some ways it's probably a, it's, it's a filter in itself, like people going, I'm not telling you what I, what I gave to the local, mm. you know, show society or whatever else. I mean, I guess if they don't, if they're not forthcoming, they're probably not the sort of people you want anyway. Well, that's right. And we're, rightly or wrongly, we're a very transparent business. I'm a transparent person. I mean, you, I've got an amazing team both here in Armidale but also in, in Bozeman in Montana. And the, I think a bit of the reason why our team is so great, we've got some top people, is that they know as much about the business and its performance as I do. You know, we've got quite a discipline around our annual plans, our what we call our management rhythm, so our quarterly priorities, you know, our weekly check-ins. We even have, Charlie, a daily stand-up. 15 minutes, it can only be 15 minutes, and it's a stand-up. Who's doing what today? 
um, do you need someone else to help you? Mm. Are you waiting on someone? Else? It's only 15 minutes and it's standing up. It's not allowed to be any more than 15 minutes. But it's When you say standing up, literally you're standing around. Standing up yeah. in the office. Yeah. If you're in the office, you're standing up. If you're not, you're dialing in. That's a um, Vern Harnish thing, isn't it? That's Vern. That's Jim Collins. The huddle. You got it. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, and people just love this rhythm. They love this strategy. They love – and I think why people get really passionate about a business is when you are open and transparent and we look every quarter, our actuals versus budget, how we're performing as a business – what are some of the metrics we're, we're achieving on the farms? You know, we talk a lot about our bright spots, you know, what we've done well, but we're also talking about what's the brutal facts. Well, this farm here in Queensland, it's going through a terrible drought. Well, how's our people? What are we going to do about that? Um, you know, how's the ecology? So we have a very disciplined system in how we run our business. And then that filtrates into um, the assets that we manage. So we've just, I've just got back... Uh, on Friday and from our ranchers in the US and we've just had an intense week on strategy and annual planning, quarterly planning and all the me- what we call I talk I talk about metrics but they're um, they're all towards how we measure success. So our MOS, our measures of success, what are they? So and as a team we come up with them. Uh, I can facilitate the process, but as a team, we need to come up with those that balanced scorecard. What are we going to be comfortable with in terms of performance? So um, I'm really lucky that I get to create, Charlie, these investment and business strategies. The investors, in some cases, or many cases actually, leave it up to us to say, when you're when you've had time, come back to us to what you think the strategy is. You know what, as an investor, what some of our expectations and criteria are. Tell us what the strategy, what our core values are. Tell us our BHAG. Tell us all of those things. Come back to us when you're ready and, you know, let's get on with it. Let's create something really cool. So so I miss that. So, so you're, the, the, were they saying, do you get back to us with that stuff? Because they've given you that job to try and create or the other way around? No, no, like we, we will get from an investor their broad vision yeah. and purpose. Yes. And then we backfill it and say, okay, I'll get all the team and say, how, what's, and how do we want to play the game? Mm-hmm. So what are, our, what are we going to live by? What are our core values? You know, stay curious, um, play open-minded, uh, never, ever give up. You know, things like what's next, be the leader, all these sorts of things and, and as a team and then that's how you create culture. So everyone is on the same journey. Mm. Um, and these are the sorts of things we check in on and say every quarter, how are we tracking? Um, what's, it, what's our measures of success? What's the numbers? Let the numbers the, – the numbers are the facts. So Yep, let them speak. Yep. Um, let's cover natural capital. What are, I mean, I guess from a – so that's sort of a – I guess it's an internal um, impact ag partners. You know, um, you're you're looking at natural capital, you know, as an asset, or not just here's a property; it's an asset. Like, what are the other um, parts of that asset that that um, have value? Um, that's what you guys focus on with your the assets you're managing. What are some of the things that f- you know farmers? You know, they're hearing about natural capital and kind of 
now know what it means. What what are some of the opportunities for, um, you know, someone who's got two thousand acres down the road here at Ebor mm. um, to to tap into that? Like, what what relevance does it have to them? I think, I mean, depending on the sort of person they are. Oh, of course, course. Thing, of course. I mean, you know, if they're open-minded, going, "Oh, this is interesting. What, yeah. What's what's it about?" Yep. I think first, first things first is you've got to know, and we just talk around a baseline. You've got to know what your starting point is. What have you got today? And if you don't have, you know, biodiversity kind of uh, transects. If you don't have soil tests. If you don't have an understanding of you know, the water coming in, coming out of your asset. You've got to know kind of your starting point, if that makes sense. Mm. And if you've got your starting point, um, then you can you know and you can start to build on where you're at. If you don't, again, if you don't have data, the data are the facts, You, it's really hard to make a decision which way you're going to go. So, you know, we're, we're re- it's really interesting because we, in acquiring new assets, you know, we have been – pretty dogged about if some in the due diligence process charlie if this is something that ticks the majority of the boxes we get in early and we'll test the water if it's got some irrigation we'll test all of the the soils that are strategic different land classes so we kind of um come up with uh some metrics that we can make future um predictions on in terms of soil health, plant health, uh, health of the water system, and are they going to, where are they in their journey? Are you doing it again? It must be Stan. Mate, your uh, phone's about to die. I think it might be. So, you know, for us, and what that does, Charlie, it just helps us understand what the potential upside of an asset is. So we'll go and look at a farm and say, look at these soil tests, look at the soil type, look at the land class, what production system are you going to run and then say, what sort of upsides left in this asset from a soil point of view? And, you know, because we've got assets now that are delivering, you know, 1% cash yield year on year just from soil carbon. So in this is not going to last for long, but in some circumstances we can pay more for an asset than the next door neighbour because we know the carbon value where, you know, everyone's going to get up to speed pretty quick, but mm. just right now. How do you work that out? Um, this is a trade secret. Like you haven't bought an asset or are you, are, you, are you kind of making some assumptions when you look at it? Or do you literally, before you buy it, go, well, I'm just going to, can I go and test the soil here? No, that's what I'm saying. We do yeah. strategic soil testing prior to purchase. Yeah, that's all part of your due diligence. Yep. Due, due diligence. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. And that gives us an understanding. We've got enough data within our business mm-hmm. now to say, in this soil type, in this climate, in this rainfall, under this production system, that it could sequester X based on, let's say, future rainfall of Y and future production of Y, what sort of carbon could we sequester? And what are some potential biodiversity upsides we can see on this asset? And the team, in, you know, the natural capital team and Impact Ag Partners, they will say this is the value we see in this asset. For the next 15 years, we pile that onto our um other financial metrics and then we can say right we think today we could we could pay x for this and deliver a future return of y and i i would imagine and i I'm not just imagining because i know Stu's talked about it you know properties that are attractive for that are the ones that 
got a pretty bo- low baseline that have the potential that have been managed, you know, conventionally, generally. So you kind of go, well, you know, and then obviously testing soil and all the other metrics, it's, it's, that's, that's pretty, that's great, isn't it? Because I mean, you know, what do you do when you look at a property? You go, oh, it's got a nice house and, you know, rainfall. I mean, it's all those sort of very common generic metrics that we use, but that's, um, that's very smart, Bert. Well, mate, we, we have to be where you keep talking. I'm going to try and unplug my phone into the, to the, um, Oh, right. Yeah, the power show. Yeah, you keep going, mate. So we have to be. I mean, we're responsible for investors' capital and we take that responsibility very seriously. We are custodians of that capital and we it's up to us and we're responsible for the performance of that money. So we've got to manage we've got to manage any of the risk associated with that. Um, it's one thing to have a great strategy, but you, that's got to be in context with risk and when we get into the later stages of due diligence we try and make it least subjective as it can be we let the numbers do the talking and we um yeah we now have quite a process and a professional approach to due diligence and we've got enough data now to know uh the potential future performance of assets. So in that way, it really de-risks the due diligence process and gives us real confidence on what we can do and by implementing the right management, you know. So it's working really well. We're really comfortable where we're at and um, just really excited to be where we're at and be able to do that, as you would know, in this country, in Australia, land values in agricultural um regional areas has really been on a run for the last couple of years so it's really hard to compete with some of the big end of town and if you don't have the facts and the data like we do and 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 have the capacity to say this is what the annual cash yield could be off this asset from whether it's you know cereal production pots production beef lamb wool whatever plus there's this other bit of natural capital revenue what's it going to contribute then we can really understand land values. Well, I mean, it just gives you the confidence, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. You know, it's as, it's a, as obje- objective assessment as one could actually do. Yeah, and again, is, it goes back to the numbers of the facts and we need to be brutal around numbers. Um, as I said, we take our responsibility of managing other people's capital. We take that seriously and um, we respect that and we only partner with investors that are on a similar journey and are as curious and inquisitive as we are in terms of where this regenerative food and ag production can go and so we end up like you charlie with some fantastic relationships with with investors globally and um we really respect those relationships so talking about globally um you're you now you know you've got um, stuff happening in the US. Why? What was it? I mean, I guess there's probably a number of reasons why it's the US. But what do you see? What do you see over there happening, or the potential, or where's that headed? <laughs> Good question. So we're still very new with those investments. They only went through in December. Um, I think not only have I always, you know, had a soft spot for North America, and I'm learning all about the complexities of the US as a nation, the, the people, the communities, you know, it's like 50 countries in one. 
but anyway. Um, <laughs> well, each state's pretty much a country. <laughs> Mate, it's, it's such an eye-opener. <laughs> I find it fascinating. Um, but I think from our journey, I've got this deep down somewhere in the back of my head or in my gut, Charlie, I think if Impact Ag Partners is going to have some global impact, I feel like we need to be demonstrating what we can do and what we do best in the Northern Hemisphere. And the reasons I say that is, I, th- I think I said to you before we went on here, I think Australia is great at piling, piloting and demonstrating and advocating new innovations, uh, new practice change, all of these things. I think we are, you know, Alistair spoke about this yesterday, we are world leaders. I think I truly believe Australians are. I think to have the global impact that I want to have, I think we have to demonstrate what we're doing in the context of America or somewhere else in North, in, in the Northern Hemisphere. But for me, I think America because I think about the complexity of what happens in Washington and I think about the influence of the environmental groups, the wildlife groups, um, and those groups are so well-funded. Like there is a lot of money. There is a lot, a lot of money in philanthropic ventures to do with conservation, um, biodiversity, wildlife refuge, you name it. And I, we need to be able to demonstrate why livestock, in my view, this is why livestock are so important in landscape management. And if we need to be able to use data and we need to be able to demonstrate performance in those environments where their conservation areas or their wildlife refuge areas and say, look, these landscapes are better off for having livestock. And there's this other thing that we can talk to you about, which is about drawing down carbon out of the atmosphere and sequestering it in your soils. So one thing I have learned in the US is that land ownership and all of the competing parties, it's very complex. And, and well, I shouldn't say in the US as a whole because my f- core focus has been the state of Montana, but you've got federally owned land, you've got state-owned land, so the state of Montana owned land, that all contribute to, to the coffers of those, those, um, you know, those jurisdictions, the state government and the federal government. And then you've got conservation areas that are really well-funded, as I said, and then you've got wildlife refuges, again, really well-funded, and you've got programs that sit on top that say, um, called these, you know, conservation easements. And conservation easements are pretty much, in layman's terms, you can get paid for um, making a commitment that you will never develop your land for residential development or other development that's going to change the current state of that land. The use or the, yeah. So you would have heard of the Nature Conservancy. Like they're a, they're a big funder of those. Um, in Montana, we've got the, um, oh, what do we got? Um, wildlife, uh, Montana. Uh, I've lost it. Anyway, there's another Similar state item. person. Yeah. yeah. And they're, there's a multitude of those. I mean, I think WWF would participate. Yeah. So, so, so I guess that standing and looking looks like complexity, and it clearly is. 
But I guess it also represents an opportunity. Oh, yeah. It's a cool opportunity because if you can think about if if I can start um, and my team over there, we can start demonstrating how agricultural production can be done different. We back it up with data. We sequester some carbon. We reduce emissions on farm. We answer the questions that are all up in the air um, in the US and there's that many different competing voices in the US, you can imagine. And I just think you... If we can let the numbers tell the story, it's a it's a good story. Um, so, the, I mean, I, I guess those those agencies or or organisations, be them government based or so on, have have a budget, you know. And, and at the moment, they're probably shying away from disturbance of cattle in some of those areas. So, if they, yeah. So, I guess the point is, if you can guys can say, hey. Look what we can do! Look what can be done! This is actually going to add a layer of benefit to your whole thing, you know. What's what? Not so much what's in it for us, but I guess that's an opportunity for them to bet, get better outcomes, spend their budget probably more wisely, depending on what that you know, allocation looks like. But um, and also just back to the original point about the US versus anywhere else. I mean, I guess the what we're doing here, what you're doing, you know, with with um, Impact Ag and you know, what Al's doing here and Stu and, I mean, a lot of farmers in Australia, you know, it's, it's quite, oh, bloody thing, it's quite trans, transferable. Might, might be out of memory, mate. Bloody thing. Hang on, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do this. Bear with me, team, because I know for a fact there's one video that I can delete off this. And no, Bird, it's not that kind of video. <laughs> um, just bear with me. Actually, I want to do that. Um, it's quite translatable to the US, right? I mean, you know, like I think you think Europe. Oh, well, it's all you know, fat cattle, and there's three in, three in each paddock yep. compared to the US, where we're rangelands and we're doing these things. You you go there, mate. I'm going to find this video and get rid of it. And it has to be, you know, to drive change. It has to be done, as you know, Charlie, in a commercial context. And we've got to be prepared to share our commercial outcomes, whether that's financial, environmental or social. And we think that, you know, I think, you know, we're running 12,000 cows over there and we've got quite a large landscape to manage. And I just feel like if we can demonstrate to all of the parties that are involved over there that if we take on the principles of regenerative agriculture in those climates and we can demonstrate it with data and we can say, hey, Here's an alternative to managing wildfire. It's called introduction of livestock. Here's a way of you know improving your wetland. It's strategic grazing of livestock. Here's a way of sequestering some carbon. It's called this tool called livestock. I think I think it's a story that will start to resonate. And then I'd really like to premiumize some of our output in the US to say here's this beef. It's been produced like this. It's carbon neutral. Um, by the way, we've improved this wetland. By the way, we've done this with water quality. Guess what? We're using less water than what was getting used in the drought five years ago. I mean, that's. I think that's the kind of story we need to be telling. They're all. I mean, I guess those things you just referenced are all. I guess measures of success. They are environmental, measures. financial. Yep. I mean, financial. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you, well. I guess the carbon element has a has a financial outcome, but it's an environmental kind of metric as well, isn't it? You know, like there's there's. 
which which again on a balance sheet, whether it's actually there in print or it's sort of assumed with all the numbers, that is building a more resilient business, isn't it? It is definitely, and um, you know it's not going to be easy. Different climate gets it was uh, minus seventeen Celsius there this morning, so <sighs> that's fresh. It doesn't even get that cold in Ebor. <laughs> <laughs> Minus tens about the worst it gets here anymore, but um, but that was with the, the wind chill, you know. So, and I, you know, last week it snowed. We had three inches of snow when I was there. Um, so different climate. So that means you know sequestration rates probably not quite as good as here in terms of on a per annum basis. Um, but th- there's other ways of when you're working in some brutal environments. There's other ways of um, of uh, having impact. And over there with some scale. You've only got to move the needle, move the needle a small way, and you're having a substantial impact. So, so, the, so there's an overall plan to kind of, I mean, step into that as well. How do you get all this? How do you manage all this stuff, Bert? You, um, got, you got a secret? Yeah, it's called amazing people, robust systems, strong process, discipline, a lot of discipline. You, it's, you know, I'm, I'm not really a process person. Uh, when I started Impact Ag, I'll probably skip this bit, but my wife said, you need psychometric testing. <laughs> and I said, what will psychometric testing? And she said, she'll tell you what where you're really strong and good at and, and what you how you can really contribute in business, but she'll also tell you what you're not so great at. And um, it was one of the best things I've ever done. Because which, of, which version did you use? Because there's quite a few of them. There is. I can't even remember, Charlie, what it was. I've done a couple of those, you know, things. Yeah, oh, I've yeah. done a couple of those since. But this one that we did was quite in-depth and we actually had an in, someone interpret it. And then I had a, had a business coach at the time and she was driving this as well. And it was like, okay, this is, what, this is how you operate to, to, to round out the diversity you need in the business you're talking about building here. You need a person that's like this and you need a person that's like that. And, oh, yeah. and so that's kind of in the early, early days that's how we kind of build a team and so i'm going back to, i'm not really a process person so i you know i f- i build teams that will help complement some of my skills but also the skills we're going to need in the future because this is about for us technology data uh natural resources so we've got you know environmental managers we've got um rural science background people we've got natural resources we've got ecologists we've got economists we've got ex-accountants you know so rounded diverse team mate i'm just looking at the time we might um wrap this up but i do want to just do another 10 15 minutes if that's all right bert um on for our patreon members which is the little our our lovely people who think it's good value to slip us the Two coffees a month, kind of equivalent to get, to get transcripts. Get the you're the you're the bonus content oh. for, for one of the one of the episodes. This is the <laughs> when they get. So um, it's free to those guys. It's only only available to Patreon members. So anyone who wants to sign up and 
And as I was saying to Bart before, it's like, what will Bert say next? Well, you have to be a patron member to find out. Oh, well, that isn't, that, isn't that, is that a carrot or a stick? <laughs> I think it's a, it's a bonus. And, and certainly with Bart, you, you never know quite what he's going to say next. It was quite the, <laughs> it was quite the, you know, the bait for him. Um, so, mate, we're going to wrap it up here. I've got a few more for you for then. And I could have chatted for another half an hour. Um, but just on this, but and we have got some more questions there. So, mate, really appreciate your time. This is I've learned a hell of a lot just sitting here listening as well, not just sort of kind of thinking where does this all end up in the ears of my listeners. Um, and it's a, it's it's not it's I mean you know obviously a, your regenerative journey will continue till you know that you are in that pine box. Um, I trust it will and. Um, but you know, th- this is an ever, ever evolving space, isn't it? That, that there's, you know, which is a good thing. It's it's dynamic and it's yep. you know, and you're part of it. That's awesome, mate. Yeah, and you know, we're constantly learning. We're learning all the time, and you know, you know, you got to stay curious and you got to stay open minded. And I think you said yesterday, two ears, one mouth. And for us, you know, you got to be two ears, one mouth. Read a lot. Look for leaders that you aspire to be, um, and you've got to work hard. <laughs> mm. Work hard, and it's it's a commitment and and balance. Like I said, the currency of time, as you know, as you have a young family, um, getting those balance right really important. I mean, if you you can easily blow the ship up if you're not managing time. So. And that was, you know, there's no doubt there's a theme. Bart brought it up this morning um, uh, because his wife is good at tapping him on the shoulder when that's out of balance. And I think think all wives generally are, aren't they? You know, so God bless them. Right, mate, let's go wrap it up. We're going to do the Patreon thing in a minute. We'll, um, and then as the rain tumbles down, I'm glad that Stan's removed his his nag from the fence by now. (laughs) I was thinking, I actually was thinking, is is there a knife in the, in the, in the drawer there that if it, it does, Take off. I can cut that rope. Um, I had. I know there's some scissors in there. I used them <laughs> earlier on. Right, mate. Let's wrap it up. We'll get back to the next bit. Thanks, Charlie. And next week on the Regenerative Journey is an interview uh, that I'd taken some time to track down. The guest of being Angelica Arnott, my beautiful, wonderful wife. Uh, on a rainy day here at Hanamino, we um, we sat uh, <laughs> trying to avoid the the rain on the tin roof and um, explored her own regenerative journey, which I have to say is wonderful. And I hope you enjoy the interview uh, and listening to it as much as I did recording it. Next week on The Regenerative Journey. This podcast is produced by Rhys Jones at Jaeger Media. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to subscribe, share, rate and review. For more episode information, please head over to www.charliearnett.com.au.